the church as uh, the fifth gospel. We're going to call it, for the purposes of this sermon series, uh, Isaiah, the hidden gospel, um, because it really is a book beyond all others, perhaps, in the Old Testament, which seems to be dripping with the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, it seems through all the passages somehow to be pointing us, fixing our gaze ever closer on Jesus. St. Jerome in the fourth century said this, he said, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he is composing a history of what already has happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. So Isaiah is a significant book in the Old Testament. It contains so many passages that we associate with the person and the works of Jesus. Think about chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them a great light has dawned, where this promise of the uh, Messiah, who, the one coming who would be uh, called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace. Think about the passage in chapter 11, where um, Isaiah prophesies about a shoot coming from the stock of Jesse, uh, one who will um, judge with uh, righteousness, who will not judge by what his eyes see, uh, one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest. Um, think about the passages about the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, uh, in chapters 52 and 53. So many of these passages from Isaiah that we, that we hear read or we read in our worship at Christmas and Easter when we're thinking about Jesus. And uh, so over the course of um, the next sort of four Sundays or thereabouts, we're going to take a little tour through Isaiah. Now, there are 66 chapters, so it's not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. That would take us a couple of years. Um, but we, it's going to be a brief tour of the book of Isaiah to get to grips with some of these themes that come up throughout the book, um, themes that occur in different sections, themes we're going to categorize them into judgment, hope, redemption, and promise. And as we tour through the book over the next few weeks, you'll see that one of those themes, we'll focus on one of those themes in particular, but in truth, they all interpenetrate. So when we get to the later chapters and we're thinking about future promise, we will still also be hearing a word of judgment. Uh, and when we hear the word of judgment uh, that we're going to think about today, there will also be a word of hope. Uh, let me give you a tiny bit of context about Isaiah. Uh, what we know about Isaiah is that he was one of the, um, if you like, professional prophets of Israel. He was a courtly prophet. We know that because he had access to the kings and was able to go in and see them and uh, speak with them. He was, if you like, one of the people who uh, was sort of given the task of seeking the Lord, seeking the word of the Lord and proclaiming it to people, uh, proclaiming God's word into a particular context and situation. He was active as a prophet from about 739 to about 680, so a period of um, uh, about um, 60 years. I always struggle when I have to count that backwards. About 60 years. And um, through the reign of the, the four kings that we heard read there a moment ago, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, but, the, but the extent, the, the, the prophetic writings cover a, a larger period, including the exile of um, the Israelites to Babylon, uh, the account of which we read in Daniel in particular, the, letter, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, but also looking to their return. And, uh, and, and although Isaiah sees the threat of the Assyrian um, empire uh, in his day, he also sees and, uh, and see, foresees 
the exile into Babylon, Babylon, the rise of the Babylonian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire's fall and destruction uh, at the hand of um, Cyrus, the Persian uh, emperor, and the, and the rise of the Persian Empire. Um, he wasn't like Amos. Amos was another one of the prophets in the Bible who tended his sycamore trees and his fig trees. He was a, a sort of vine dresser, and he worked agriculturally. He wasn't a professional prophet, Amos. Um, but Isaiah was, and uh, so he has a particular concern with um, Jerusalem, with uh, the leaders, with the officials, the rulers of Judah and Israel. Now, to get a quick overview, we're going to watch um, three minutes of a video by The Bible Project. The Bible Project is a channel on YouTube that I highly commend to you. They've been creating animations and quick summaries about every book of the Bible and lots of the different words and terms and themes in the Bible. They're very, very good quality. And uh, the video we're going to watch is about Isaiah chapters uh, 1 to 39. It's about eight minutes long if you want to watch the whole thing. We're just going to watch three minutes as a little extract to whet our appetite. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. 
God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send, after this destruction, a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. I hope that that has uh, whet your appetite to watch some more. You can see in that video that these themes of judgment and hope that we're going to explore over the next few weeks, and uh, along with them, um, redemption and promise, are already there and, and in the very earliest chapters uh, of Isaiah. And right in the midst of these words of judgment, there is this promise of um, the new king, the Davidic king, Emmanuel, the one who will come ultimately to bring all things under God's rule. But we're going to think today specifically about this theme of judgment. And, uh, and I'm going to introduce to you five themes that I think are there in Isaiah chapter 1. And you might want to keep your Bibles open in front of you. It's page um, 685, I think, or thereabouts. Um, 685 and 6. So I'm going to read a few of the verses back to us again. And there are five themes that I think are here in Isaiah chapter 1 about judgment. I'm going to tell you four of them now, and I'm going to hold the fifth one back a little later. So the first is, uh, is that the Lord has spoken. That's the first theme. The second, that we have sinned. Uh, that's the second theme. The third, that our efforts uh, are misplaced. That is to say, our efforts to uh, rebuild and restore things are misplaced. Uh, and four, that we are afflicted, or the word I'm going to use is stricken. We are stricken by our sin. And then there's a fifth theme that I'm going to hold back and share with you um, at the end. So over the next few um, 15 minutes or so, let me uh, try and open those up for us. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would uh, quicken our hearts to receive what you have to share with us today. We pray that your spirit would be at work, opening our ears to hear your word to us, and transforming our lives, making us obedient to your will. God, we pray that um, these scriptures would be for us life-giving, even in the context of judgment. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice today. Amen. So the first theme I want to introduce is this. The Lord has spoken. And it's there in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. God's word, God's voice is powerful. It is um, primary, primal, if you like, above all things, beyond all things, before all things. God's voice comes from beyond us. It is not our own voice. The voice of God calls everything that we think we know into question encourages us, but it also challenges us. It shapes us and it forms us. 
God's voice is not a voice that we can control. It's a voice, as I say, that comes from beyond us. One of the reasons it's so important to keep ourselves immersed in Scripture is that in Scripture we hear God's voice and uh, we encounter God's voice in all of its strangeness and its peculiarity. None of us would ever write this stuff like it is. It's God's voice, not ours. And the strangeness of Scripture arrests us. It catches our attention and it, and it makes us think and question and try and work out what God is saying to us and what's going on. It's not a voice of our own control. It's not the self-justifying or congratulating voice of our own fragile ego. Do you know the voice I mean? It's certainly a voice that I struggle with, my internal voice, the voice of my fragile ego, which, um, you know, when I'm struggling with something, wants to justify my behavior or my thoughts or my actions to myself, to the world. It's the, it's the voice that wants to give a good and positive account of myself. Or, or maybe when I'm doing well at something, I want to, or maybe when I'm struggling and feeling insecure, it's that my fragile ego has a voice within me that wants to congratulate me and say, oh, you're, you're doing okay, really. You're doing all right, really. But it's still, it's, it's, it's the, I suppose in social media terms, we call it the echo chamber, right? It's the voice within ourselves that keeps on reinforcing uh, everything we think about ourselves. It's not the voice that comes from God, the voice from beyond ourselves. I don't have the exact quote, uh, I'm afraid, but I was reminded that I, there's an episode um, uh, that I have quoted before in another sermon. I really like it, an entry in one of Bridget Jones's diary entries in which she says, uh, she writes the date and the time, she says, you know, uh, am secure, self-assured woman with strong sense of purpose and, uh, and an assured sense of self. My sense of self comes from within me? Wait a minute, that can't be right. And then she wrestles with the idea that, you know, our sense of self can't come generated from within because it's too unreliable, it's too vulnerable, it's not assured. Actually, our sense of self needs to come from outside. It needs to be a word from beyond us. And we know this to some extent in our everyday lives. When we um, have done a piece of work or, or we're engaged in something or, or maybe there's something for which we want... Um, there's something for which we want commendation. Uh, if we have a, a word of congratulation or commendation that comes from a stranger, somebody we don't know, and they say, oh, you did that great, you're really good at that, we think, well, that's nice, but it doesn't really mean anything. I'm sensing that the sun must be shining down in that corner. <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything um, if it's a complete stranger. Now, if we receive a accommodation or an encouraging word from somebody who knows us and knows a bit about us and knows maybe the struggle that we've put into something and they say you did that really well well done I was so impressed well that means a bit more to us okay now if it's somebody that you look up to and you respect somebody whose opinion you hold in 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 great esteem well then it means even more to you if it's a word that comes from beyond you an encouraging word that comes from someone who knows you and knows all the bad things about you as well like your bad habits and uh, some of the attitudes that you struggle with well that makes even more of a difference and that's why you know our relationships um, as parents with children or spouses are so crucial it's the encouraging word that comes from the person who really knows all about you but still they say something kind or encouraging or loving 
that really starts to affect you. It's so important as parents that with our children, our children will make mistakes. They'll, um, and there'll be, there'll be attitudes and behaviors that are not good that need to be transformed and changed. But actually the fact that we will love them and encourage them regardless is crucial to them. It's true as well for, uh, in friendship. It's true in marriages. And of course it's most profoundly true in our relationship with God our Father. God our Father who knows the secret thoughts of our hearts. Those things that we never get voice to. Some of the things you've never told your spouse, you've never told your closest friend, you've never told your children or your parents because they're just too dark. They're too wounded, vulnerable, fragile. They're too violent or full of rage. and They will never be given voice to. But God knows them. And God still says, you are my daughter, my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Well, that's when we begin to recover a sense of self, a sense of who we are as a child of God. Because it's God our Father who knows the very deepest and darkest thoughts of our hearts. And yet says, I love you. I accept you. You are adopted by grace into my family. God's voice is creative and also destructive. It's destructive because it shakes the cedars of Lebanon, uh, Psalm 19. It's uh, powerful, but it's creative because it calls things into being. It is the voice which adopts us, as I just said, into God's family by grace that makes us sons and daughters. God's voice is compelling even when it is quiet. Think of Elijah. It's not the lightning nor the thunder. It's the still, small voice. God's voice confirms our relationship. It's God our Father speaking those same words that he spoke over Jesus at his baptism. And we get to receive those same words of affirmation, those words of adoption, because we are incorporated into Christ by our baptism, by our common baptism. We are one. So that what God says of Christ, God also says of us. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. And so God looks on you and says, you're my daughter. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The Lord has spoken. It all begins in this. I've gone on too long about that, sorry. Um, that's the first theme, the Lord has spoken. The second is this, that we have sinned. Now, I want to define sin as it's defined here in verses 2 and 4. Uh, so hear what it says in verse 2. It says, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Again, it's this relationship of a father to a child. And then in verse 4, ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. You see, they've rebelled. They've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. And this for Isaiah seems to be at the very heart of what sin is. Later in uh, the book, we're described as sheep who have gone astray. And it's our wandering far from God that is the essence of our sin. It's not even so much about what we do. It's not so much that sin is about bad stuff that we do, although it is, and it does include that. That counts as well. But more profoundly, it's about how we try to lead our lives as our own Lord and Master. St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, describes sin as being what happens when we worship created things instead of the Creator. And sin causes a fundamental confusion and ignorance. And this is um, outlined again here in um, verse 3. The ox knows his master, the donkey, his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
as Iris saying that there's a sort of order to things. The ox knows its master. It understands its relationship. But here, though we are children, we've rebelled. We've spurned God. And, and, and we no longer understand and realize that we were children of a heavenly father. And we were uh, subjects to the king and that we should be following his will. We've wandered. We've turned away. We don't know and acknowledge our Lord. It's our rebellion that turns us away. And so sin is, as I say, not just about bad stuff that we do. We do bad stuff and we repent of it. But actually, even when we do good stuff, sin has a grip on our lives. Because sometimes we do good stuff um, trying to be Lord and master of our own lives. We do good stuff not in, not in that relationship with God, but out of our own efforts. I'm going to come on to that in a moment. It's important for us to know, and I think in my life I found it liberating to understand uh, just how deep the grip of sin is in our lives. Now, it doesn't have an ultimate power because its ultimate power has been destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we need to understand that this fallenness, this brokenness, this rebellion to God is like a genetic flaw. It's like a dysfunction in us um, that will one day be ultimately healed but is not yet one author that I like described it as the human propensity to muck things up. He didn't use the word muck, he used one that sounded like it. But he said, we have this basic propensity to muck things up. We get stuff wrong. It's just in us. And I think that when we have this understanding of sin in our lives, it gives us a realistic understanding of our limitations. And, and then a greater appreciation of God's grace. So we had our Ash Wednesday service just a few days ago, and I was talking a bit about the Puritans. And the Puritans got something about the depth and the profundity of our sin and our fallenness, um, and the tragedy of the human condition. They were very dour. They were very severe. They weren't much fun. No Christmas, no dancing, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not a Puritan. But what they did get, and I liked, was they got this sense that sin has gone all the way down in our lives. Uh, and we need, therefore, to cast ourselves wholeheartedly and thoroughly on the grace of God given us in Jesus. Now, John Newton, I think, got this better. Um, John Newton, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, at the very end of his life, his sight had failed. He went blind, uh, but he's reported to have said this. Uh, he, says, he said that uh, though he, his sight was gone, he said, I see one thing clearly. I am a very great sinner, and I have a very great saviour. And, and that's the relationship, understanding the depth of our sin, and then the magnitude of God's grace, the magnitude uh, of what God has done for us in Christ. We, we come to appreciate it all the more. Um, and it's liberating. For me, it's liberating to know that um, I'm a sinner saved by grace, because nothing, I have no capacity within myself uh, to, to be good, or to restore my relationship with God. Let me come on to my third theme, and I'm going to speed up. So the first theme, the Lord has spoken. Second, we have sinned. Third theme, our efforts to make reparation, to make amends, are misplaced. Um, so let's look at verses 10 to 15, or 11 to 15. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. I don't like your worship songs. I don't like the drum kit. I wish you didn't have projector screens. It doesn't say that in the Bible. But you, can, you get the idea. There's a sense in which um, 
there's an indictment of some of these acts of religious observance. And that's challenging to us because we think that if we live as good lives as Christians and we sign up for the hospitality rota and we come to church every Sunday and we join a Lent group, I mean, all of those things are good things, but we think that by that we can somehow make amends and make ourselves righteous before God. But we can't. We can't. God says, away from me with these things. This is not what I need. I think there are two issues here. One is of misplaced hope and the other is of hypocrisy. So misplaced hope is thinking that somehow our own efforts can overcome the barrier between us and our God. So having realized that we are, we, we've rebelled, we've turned, we've spurned uh, the Lord, we think that somehow we can work our way back from rebellion by our own strength. As I say, the forms of worship are not wrong in and of themselves. Prayer, worship, offering to God, these are all prescribed forms for the Israelites to come into God's presence. But they are insufficient by themselves. They need something else. They need to depend upon the grace of, uh, the grace of God and the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit to be effective. And that's true for us as well. So if you have your daily quiet time and you read your Bible or you, you join a connect group or you come to church, you do all these things, they're good things and they will help you. But they're not enough by themselves. Actually, it's only when the Holy Spirit inhabits those times of reading the Bible, of prayer, of worship. It's only in recognizing that we still need God to be doing something in our midst that we can begin to be restored. So there's misplaced hope. The second issue is um, hypocrisy. And the sentiments that are expressed in formal worship are not being matched by action. And this is even more sharply condemned in Isaiah 58 on true fasting, or again in Amos, uh, when he condemns um, the religious leaders who are celebrating their Sabbaths and their new moon festivals and their feasts, but exploiting their workers. And um, here it's expressed in lack of care for the widow and the orphan. So verses 16 and 17 God says, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You can't just come to worship on a Sunday if you're going to go back to work on Monday and not stand up for the rights of the most marginalized and oppressed in your workplace. You've got to live an integrated life You've got to know that 24-7, 365 days of the year, when, when you're at work, when you're at home, the way you live, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you work with your work colleagues, that if you see injustice or oppression or you see the vulnerable um, exploited, that you will speak up for them. You will defend their cause. Otherwise, your worship is meaningless. So misplaced hope, hypocrisy. And you can see that this, um, this third theme that I talked about was, um, uh, uh, was this, what, what did I call it? Our own efforts. Our efforts are misplaced. Right, so again, it, it comes back to that thing about if we think that we can be Lord and master of our own lives and we can take all the initiative and take all the action um, and then we make these efforts to somehow earn God's favor, the efforts are misplaced. It simply reinforces the problem because if we're trying to do it in our own strength, uh, then we are in rebellion from God. We're not doing it with God. If sin is just about what we do, 
sin isn't just about what we do, but it's about our determination to do things our own way, to be Lord and Master of our own lives, then if our, our efforts to make reparation, to um, bring acceptable worship, will simply be another form of rebellion against God. So, uh, God has spoken, we have sinned, our efforts are misplaced. Fourthly, we are stricken, we are afflicted. And um, this is really about the result of all of this. So, verses 28 to 30 say this, Rebels and sinners will both be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves. An oak with fading leaves. Autumn, death, decay. You'll be like a garden without water. Nothing fruitful will grow. This is what happens in a life lived in rebellion to God. This is actually the fate of every human person, man, woman, and child. Apart from God, we will perish. It says verse 31, the mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. The mighty man, all of, all of the efforts that we might uh, undertake to build for ourselves um, a robust fortress around our lives, a house, a job, a promotion, a spouse, children, reputation, status, power, influence, money, car, wealth, pension, all of these things that we might use to construct for ourselves a mighty fortress around our lives, they will become tinder. Tinder, the very thing that burns the quickest and the fastest, and they too will be the spark for the tinder. What does it say? Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. I hope you're feeling depressed. It's cheery stuff, isn't it? Um, my aim, my aim is to... Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great um, New England preacher, used to long that his congregation would smell the sulfuric fumes coming up as he kind of, by his preaching, dangled them above the pit of hell. Maybe not going that far. But, but, but it is bleak. This is life lived in rebellion with God. Ultimately, death comes. Death comes. And, and, and I sort of think God will honor our choices. If we choose to live our life in rebellion to God and we live as though God were not our Lord and Master, but we're simply, you know, um, meaningless. If, if we choose to live our lives without God, why should it be any different in our death? I think deep down somehow we know this and we, have, we suffer a restlessness in our lives. We try to build. And I think it's a form of the affliction. So uh, St. Augustine said that um, uh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. We are restless. Kierkegaard described it as the sickness unto death. He said that despair, despair is, is the reality of sin, this life lived in rebellion from God. It's the human condition of being separated from God. And, and how do we cope with that? How do we cope with, our, with, with the, 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 the despair, with the nothingness of it all? Well, we either project onto others, so we make others the source of our frustration, or we despise ourselves. So we either think that um, it's everybody else's fault, and if only we didn't have other people around, we, everything would be fine and we could live lives as we wanted to. 
the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre described it as l'enfer, c'est les autres. Hell is other people. Hell is other people. It's just other people. Or we turn in and, we, and it's self-loathing. We despise ourselves. We can't bear ourselves. And I think in its very worst and extreme forms, that can lead even to suicide it, because it's a sort of, I cannot live. The world would be a better place without me. I can't live with this nothingness, this despair. Um, and it can lead to all kinds of um, mental and emotional um, uh, ill health. But both forms of coping, you see, are violent. They're not peaceable. One is violent towards others because it's making the problem other people's. The other is violent towards ourselves. Both are frustrating because they don't lead into transformed lives. We are never healed. So what hope is there for us? Well, I said there were five themes, and it's this one word that's here. The Lord says, come. The Lord says, come. We didn't have it read in the reading, but it's here in verse 18. Have a look at it. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Come now, let us reason together. Come, come. Even in the midst of this judgment, even in the, the bleakness and the desperation of judgment, of life without God, still there is this word of invitation, come, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest, says Jesus, come, come. Well, how do we come? How do we come to God? How do we hear this word of invitation and respond? We come by repentance said it before and uh, no doubt I'll say it again Martin Luther in the first of his 95 theses said that our, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of a believer be one of continual repentance whole life of a believer one of continual repentance that can seem a bit bleak as though we're not making any progress but actually what he means is that's how we make progress by repenting 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 because repenting is just turning back it's just responding to the invitation it's just responding to that word of grace, that word, come. So let's stand together. Father, we hear your word of invitation. We hear your voice, your powerful, creative voice inviting us to come. And Lord, make our hearts willing. Lord, make our spirits obedient. Lord, by your spirit, Help us to turn and to repent and to say yes. God, even now as we stand, we are saying yes to you. You invite us to come and we say yes. We have no power to help ourselves but for the work of your spirit within us, but for your grace at work in our lives. So we come, gladly we come, because we can do nothing for ourselves. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who uh, is struggling, who is restless, who is afflicted, who is stricken by their efforts to be Lord and master of their own lives. God, give us freedom. Give us the liberty to know that we can never do it and simply to respond to your invitation. Lord, I pray for anyone here for whom that's true. Uh, may, they, may they receive your grace even now. Make your church, uh, make us willing and obedient. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat and let's just remain in prayer and Bessetti is going to lead our intercessions.